this lecture, we're going to cover endocrine disorders. Let's start by taking a little bit of time just to review the endocrine glands. And the main reason I want to do this is partly because we're not going to be covering all portions of the endocrine system in this lecture, either because we've discussed it in a previous lecture or we'll be including it in a future module. So as far as endocrine glands go, um, just a reminder that the product of the endocrine system, which is hormones, could be thought of as just another chemical messenger. And we've talked quite a bit about chemical messengers, particularly when we were going over inflammation, the immune system, and various parts of your body's natural defense system. Um, and so this is just another way that your body communicates with various other tissues and other organs. Um, so by a particular organ or gland secreting a chemical messenger, that enters the bloodstream and has some sort of target, whether that be a cell or another organ, um, in order to generate another um, process or to stimulate some sort of mechanism um, to address the current system. And usually it's a negative feedback system. So as that increases, it's going to downregulate the production of that hormone going forward. Now there are quite a few endocrine glands we could discuss from the hypothalamus and the pineal gland all the way down through some of the um, more significant ones we're going to talk about here. But we're going to concentrate for the purposes of this module on the pituitary, the parathyroid, the thyroid, the adrenal, and the pancreas. The thymus we talked about briefly as the location where your T cells go to mature as one of your lymphocytes in the immune system. The ovaries and testes obviously produce hormones, but that's more part of the reproductive system, and so that's not something we're going to discuss here. Let's start by talking about the pancreas, because one of the significant conditions that some of you may either deal with personally or in your family, but most certainly you might have to address going forward is diabetes. But there is both an endocrine and an exocrine portion of the pancreas. So the exocrine portion has to do with your digestive system. These are enzymes that help to break down protein, fats, and carbohydrates. That's not going to be part of what we're discussing here. We're concentrating on the endocrine portion of the pancreas, which is where you produce hormones such as insulin, glucagon, and somatostatin. So insulin, um, if you hopefully recall from anatomy and physiology, is made by beta cells in the islets of Langerhans. And what they do is stimulate the uptake of glucose from the blood into the cell. Glucagon, on the other hand, um, it stimulates, it's made, um, by the way, in the alpha cells, it stimulates the liver to output glucose. So it's a way for you to break down glycogen into glucose or put together glucose from amino acids so that you have glucose available if there isn't any from absorption of your digestive system. And then somatostatin made by your delta cells, that is, kind of the checks and balances of everything. Um, and you can kind of remember that by looking at statin or stop um, as a way to remember that. This particular um, endocrine hormone inhibits glucagon and insulin secretion. So it's going to be the part that um, is the checks and balances 
um, to, to regulate the production of insulin and glucagon. So before going into diabetes itself, I want to talk about something that's closely related to that, um, and that's um, metabolic syndrome. Now this is not specific to diabetes or the pancreas. It's actually a constellation of factors that happens to be associated with a pro-inflammatory and pro-thrombotic state. And what we're realizing now is this may be far more widespread than previously thought. What the issue is with this is that it drastically increases the risk of cardiovascular disease, type two diabetes and stroke because of these various um, increases in inflammation and thrombosis throughout the body. Now, the um, hallmarks of metabolic syndrome include things that go across these various systems. So typically, there is glucose intolerance and or insulin resistance. And one of the ways that we can um, verify that that is occurring is looking at a fasting glucose. And this is not high enough to be diagnosed as diabetes perhaps yet. So it's higher than normal, which might be between 100 and 110 milligrams per deciliter, but it's less than what we use as a diagnostic criteria for diabetes, which is 126 milligrams per deciliter. Okay, so it's somewhere in between. It's more than normal, but not high enough yet to be diagnosed as diabetes. Dyslipidemia um, is a term that describes um, an abnormal lipid profile. And in this case, it's an atherogenic lipid profile. And what I mean by that is that the HDL is low. And in fact, it's usually less than 40 if it's men um, and less than 50 if it's women. And an elevated LDL. Um, that's your bad cholesterol. And we'll talk more about um, how all of this goes together in a little bit, or actually we did previously talk about this along with hypertension as significant risk factors for cardiovascular disease. Hypertension here being defined as greater than 130 over 85 millimeters of mercury. And typically what goes along with this is abdominal obesity. In fact, if you look at a waist circumference, It's usually if it's more than 40 inches in men and greater than 35 inches in women. And so all of that together puts an individual at quite a big risk. So here are some of those things. Liver disease, um, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Um, you can even have some issues with breathing because particularly because of this um, truncal obesity. Um, sleep apnea. Um, for example, hypoventilation syndrome because of an inability to completely expand, um, stroke, cataracts, coronary heart disease or coronary or cardiovascular disease, as I've listed here, diabetes, hypertension, pancreatitis can even be an issue. So there are quite a few things that become an issue and because of the additional weight, osteoarthritis is even something to consider. So I wanted to put this um, out there as a potential precursor to diabetes, but it also ties back into the content that we recently completed on cardiovascular um, diseases. So if the individual is specifically diagnosed as having diabetes mellitus, um, there is a more uh, specific criteria for 
um, diagnosing this. But I want to make sure you also realize that there are different forms of this that aren't necessarily always related to obesity. Um, it is defined as an inability to adequately use glucose, and there are various ways this could happen depending on which type we are talking about. So there um, are two different types, and there are different terms that were traditionally used. Sometimes type 1 used to be called insulin dependent, but we don't use that term anymore because we know now that even though these individuals require insulin, there are some people who need insulin also who are actually type 2 diabetics. And sometimes this used to be um, denoted with a uh, Roman numeral 1, and this one was denoted with Roman numeral 2. Now they've started using just regular Arabic numbers to indicate that. And this was a non-insulin dependent diabetes, but these again, old terminology because to be quite honest there are some cases where the use of insulin um, really isn't what defines type 1 or type 2. It has more to do with the cause and typically the onset. So type 1 um, happens because of autoimmune destruction of the cells that make insulin, the beta cells and the islets of Langerhans in the pancreas. Whereas type 2 has the ability to make insulin, but your body has become resistant to it, or it's not producing enough of it, or what um, you are producing is just out of balance. There is some sort of deficit because perhaps maybe your liver is producing excess glucose. Now by far, um, the more common of these two types is type two. So 90% of those diagnosed with diabetes will be type two. Um, only about 10% are type 1, but type 1 can have some more significant um, issues, complications, and acute conditions to be aware of. So we are going to go over that, particularly if you end up working with a um, patient, client, or athlete who is type 1. They um, may have some more things that you need to be aware of in terms of of insulin related to exercise. So let's talk about some more of the difference between the two types. Um, diabetes mellitus type 1, while it can happen at any time, by far happens more commonly at a younger age in terms of diagnosis. Um, and typically the characteristics of an individual diagnosed with that is a normal or underweight individual. Um, so that is typically because they're not able to use their glucose when they're not producing insulin at all. So their body begins to use fat. So they actually may lose weight during this time where the changes are occurring um, in their production of insulin. And this, because it is a lack of insulin production, has a much more sudden onset and the symptoms are more significant when they occur. Um, diabetes type two, however, typically is older onset. However, the exception to this is when you have childhood obesity. Um, unfortunately, there is an epidemic of obesity among children um, in this country, and unfortunately that increases the risk of being diagnosed with type 2 diabetes in childhood. Um, so regardless of age, an individual diagnosed with type 2 diabetes is usually overweight or clinically obese. And they, rather than having a lack of insulin, they may have normal levels of insulin, perhaps even higher levels of insulin. If they're insulin resistant, their body may respond by trying to make more. 
Um, and so this has a more gradual onset and the symptoms are less severe. In fact, in, in some cases, an individual might not be diagnosed based on their symptoms. It might just be a screening that occurs in a, a physical or um, health fair or something along those lines. But let's look at how this would be diagnosed. So some terms that often describe the hallmark symptoms of diabetes are PPP or PUPD, which stands for polyuria polydipsia. And the third P, if you're using this mnemonic, is polyphagia. So let's go through what this means. Polyuria means excess urine production. And the reason that this happens is when the body can't use glucose, it becomes very high in the bloodstream and the kidneys try to filter it. And when the kidneys filter it, they're really only able to reabsorb a certain amount above which it starts to spill over into the urine. And when that happens, water follows and tries to dilute it out, which means the individual is producing larger quantities of urine with sugar in it that is going to end up making that person dehydrated because they're losing more water than they normally would through the urinary system. Now the body obviously when responding to that dehydration is going to increase thirst in the hopes of replenishing some of that lost fluid. So they will always be thirsty, always be drinking, but yet continue to urinate larger quantities. Um, in addition to that, particularly with type one, they may always be hungry. Um, and that's partly because even though they're taking in enough food, they can't use the glucose that is there because in type one, again, in particular, they can't make glucose in order to get that, um, or they can't make insulin in order to get the glucose into the cells. So their body actually may um, lose weight as they use fats for energy instead. Now with type one and type two, there are some other things that might be present at diagnosis or even during the course of the disease. Um, that are different from each other. One of the more serious complications or potential occurrences at time of diagnosis in type one diabetics is something called DKA, which stands for diabetic ketoacidosis. So if you recall me saying that when you can't use glucose, you may begin to use fats as a source of energy. Now, fats are a great source of energy, however, your body does not have the ability to completely break them down. And so what happens is you create ketones as a byproduct of fatty acid metabolism. Now those ketones are a little bit acidic and they can actually make a fruity smell, almost like juicy fruit gum to the breath. They're sort of um, volatile. So in an individual's breathing or speaking, they may exhale these ketones that have a fruity type smell to them. Now, in addition to that, because of the changes in pH, it's going to actually lower the pH. In other words, that's where the acidosis comes in. Because those ketones are acidic, this is potentially going to cause things like nausea and vomiting, which may worsen the electrolyte imbalance that is occurring because of the changes in the blood pH. Now, just like with glucose, your kidneys have the ability to reabsorb ketones, but only to a certain amount. So after a certain point, your kidneys can no longer reabsorb those ketones and they spill over into the urine. 
So it's possible not only that this individual will have glucose in their urine, but also ketones in their urine. And as we talked about in a previous lecture, some of those chapters at the beginning of the semester, your lungs try to compensate for changes in the pH. So what happens here is the body in trying to adjust the pH and get rid of some of those acids will increase the respiratory rate. This is called pulmonary compensation for the ketoacidosis that's occurring. So you, this might be another symptom you might notice in an individual who is um, suffering from DKA. This altogether may also contribute to mental disorientation or confusion, and when this becomes very serious, they may have a loss of consciousness and go into what's called a diabetic coma. Now, this obviously is a more common occurrence in those with type 1, but type 2 um, diabetic patients also have the possibility of a different type of situation. Here, theirs is called a hyperosmolar coma from excessive water loss. This tends to happen, however, more commonly in older adults and otherwise debilitated patients. So how might you diagnose this? Well, as I said, sometimes, particularly with type 2, the signs and symptoms come on slowly, they sort of adapt to it, and they may not um, find this except as a screening. So many times in a yearly physical or other doctor's visit, they may do a urinalysis. So sometimes that may be the time when it's diagnosed. And what happens then is they use this type of screening method where a dipstick is um, dipped into the urine that has the ability with these little pads on this, um, on this strip to detect for glucose and ketones in the urine. Now, something else they may do is what you see in this image, and that's a glucometer. That will actually look for um, the amount of glucose in the bloodstream itself. Now, typically when they're doing this as a screening um, in the doctor's office, unless they've told the patient to fast, this would be a non-fasting blood glucose specimen. And here, if at any time with a non-fasting specimen, that glucose with the glucometer is greater than 200, and this is milligrams per deciliter, that would be an indication that it may be diabetes and needs further confirmation. Typically, the confirmation requires a fasting blood glucose. This is important. So at least eight hours of fasting, water only um, for those eight hours. Um, if it is greater, the blood glucose is greater than 126 milligrams per deciliter, that's when you would typically confirm the diagnosis of diabetes mellitus. And the doctor may then order additional testing, such as a glucose curve or glucose tolerance test, sometimes called a GTT, in order to see what is going on with the insulin. Because what this does is they take a, a test, uh, a blood sample here at time zero, and then they administer a specific glucose solution. And they will then monitor with various blood samples the um, rise of glucose in the bloodstream and the rise of insulin in the bloodstream and try to determine the exact amounts of each. So that can be quite helpful. If acidosis is suspected, or you're at least trying to look for that, particularly in a type 1 diabetic, they might do arterial blood gases. And even as a screening now, they're also doing more um, long-term evaluation of glucose control. For example, um, you can't really fool a physician, for example, that you've 
um, not been good at controlling your blood glucose and all of a sudden for the week or two before your checkup, you're really good at it. That's because as glucose rises in the bloodstream, it begins to attach to things. And so we can actually measure the attachment of glucose to other proteins as a way of determining whether glucose has been elevated in the bloodstream recently. So glycosylated hemoglobin called hemoglobin A1C is one way that we do that. Um, when glucose is elevated, it can actually begin to attach to hemoglobin in your bloodstream. And if it's greater than 7%, that's going to tell a physician that over the past two to three months or so, that the glucose has not been maintained at a normal level within the bloodstream. Now, glucose can also attach to albumin. That substance together is called fructosamine. This can give um, a doctor an idea of what's been going on in the last two to three weeks. But probably the hemoglobin A1C is a more common use for either screening for prediabetes or looking at how well the individual has been doing over the past few months. Now, long term, um, you can avoid the onset of some of these sequelae. If you remember, that term is another way of saying unwanted complications or unwanted side effects of a disease. And the long-term complications and side effects essentially of diabetes can be significant, but good management of blood glucose levels can be the best way to avoid some of these or at least delay their onset. The majority of the long-term sequelae for diabetes involve the blood vessels and the nerves. Um, the term that goes along with the disease to the blood vessels is called angiopathy, and it is usually combined with a term that describes the large vessels and the small vessels. So in your larger vessels, macroangiopathy actually contributes to the increased heart disease risk that you can see um, in this graphic here. That's because there is an increased risk of atherosclerosis in individuals who are diabetic. Now in your capillaries, in other words, your micro um, vessels, called microangiopathy, you're gonna get poorer healing because there is slowed fl blood flow and slower diffusion. Um, and there are specific organ systems where this becomes an issue. So the eyes are a big place where you're going to have issues and the kidneys. So um, kidney disease and blindness from diabetic retinopathy are um, a significant issue. In fact, renal failure is a distinct possibility for individuals as they get older um, if nephropathy is progressing. Cataracts are also increased in um, incidence in those who are diabetic. That can be corrected with surgery. However, um, that is something that can be a continual problem if they continue to develop. And then um, let me circle, these are the three big ones I want you to understand. Retinopathy, nephropathy, and neuropathy are the big opathies, so to speak, that we associate with long-term sequelae of diabetes. What happens in the nerves is that initially they become irritated and painful. However, as neuropathy progresses, there is a loss of touch sense or proprioception. The pain goes away and now it becomes numb. So this becomes a problem because not only do they lose that positioning sense, but they lose the ability to detect if they have an injury. 
They um, are more at risk for amputations. I guess that's listed here, so maybe I won't write it out again. Um, poor healing and gangrene. So infection developing because um, they may have a sore or injury in the foot that they can't feel it, and so they continue to injure it. And they end up then um, having significant foot um, issues that may require amputation of a toe, amputation of the entire foot. So those of you going into physical therapy might find that this is a group that you may work with um, depending on the population and the setting that you're going to go into. Now, the biggest part of treatment for this is going to start out with just diet and exercise. Um, the dietary approach to treating diabetes mellitus is called medical nutrition therapy or MNT. A big part of this is going to be regardless of type 1 or type 2 nutritional counseling so that individuals are educated on what a carbohydrate is, what kinds of foods that um, are higher in carbs, and then sort of um, getting into the understanding of how to count carbs or at least assess the amount of carbs in the foods that they're eating and understanding the difference in foods that have um, sugars that are carbohydrates that will quote unquote spike your blood glucose level or those that will cause it to rise and fall slowly. And that's where understanding the glycemic index um, is important. So here's kind of an example. So foods that have more whole grains and fiber, for example, tend to make your blood sugar rise more slowly and level out again more slowly. And these are called low glycemic, glycemic index foods. The ones that um, have more simple carbs or simple sugars and usually less fiber and less whole grain, those are going to be ones that cause your blood sugar to go up quickly and then fall quickly. And so this is going to be one of the things that you're going to try to educate individuals. And I don't say you as in you're going to be doing it, but you can be part of this process in educating individuals. Um, that they need to understand which kinds of foods they should ideally be avoiding in their diet. Um, and this is actually good for all of us to understand because this is just in general more healthy eating with whole grains and fiber. Um, and then understanding the importance of exercise, which here is where you guys may come in. Um, sometimes it's hard for them, and depending on what their background is, understanding that um, exercise actually helps your body be more efficient at using glucose because the, the muscles with moderate exercise take glucose up and store it. That, that means that's going to decrease the blood glucose. So not only is this helpful in managing blood glucose um, over time, it also, particularly in those who are type 2 diabetics, can help manage their weight. It may even allow them to lose weight. There are some cases where individuals with a loss of weight and continued lifestyle changes may be able to reverse a type 2 diabetes diagnosis. Although it's more rare, it is possible, um, particularly if the main reason was an insulin resistance by being obese. And so it's difficult to maintain that lower weight, um, but it may be something that's a possibility. Now, typically, depending on whether type 2 or type 1, some other type of medication or insulin replacement may be involved in that. Now, there are a whole lot of drugs that you may want to um, make yourself aware of if you work with this population. But before getting to that, I want to talk about something that most likely 
um, would be part of your purview if you're going into um, rehabilitation or physical therapy or just working one-on-one um, -on -one with individuals. Um, and this is the relationship between exercise, meals, medication, and insulin, um, because this can be a difficult balancing act, especially if the person is newly diagnosed. So something that can help is making sure that an individual has exercise, meals, and medication on a very tight schedule. In other words, the same time each day. That can help them make sure that they have a better understanding of how their body um, deals with glucose and deals with exercise. Um, in fact, with any change in routine, it's really important to check glucose regularly, um, particularly with exercise, because um, if the glucose is very high, you don't want to exercise. Um, some individuals, um, their body considers um, especially more vigorous exercise like a stressor and their body with a stress response may release glucose which means that they may have a need to inject more insulin um, and before I skip over it because I don't want to um, not mention this it's really important if there's any question um, and, and even encouraging making sure individuals um, wear some sort of identification that they have diabetes to help um, medical professionals uh, deal with a, an acute incident if it's not a patient or person that they know. So some of the things that they might need to be aware of, um, for example, is that during and after an exercise event, an individual is at risk, particularly with type 1, of becoming hypoglycemic. In fact, for individuals who are type 1, it could be anywhere from 6 to 24 hours, if it's strenuous exercise, that they become hypoglycemic. Um, and so that requires you to be sure to have a glucose source available. And hopefully that individual has had some counseling and, and um, information about having these with them at all times. Now, as I said, in some people, vigorous exercise um, is kind of treated as a stressor by the body. And that may release blood glucose, which means that they need to be ready to inject insulin. So there is this um, balancing act between hyperglycemia and hypoglycemia with exercise depending on an individual. So that's going to take some time to get used to um, and trying to keep everything on a more regular schedule is going to be important. Now let's talk about what some of those drugs or treatments might be. Actually, before getting to that, um, because understanding the relationship between hyper and hypo glycemia is important, I wanna mention some of the differences between that. So a hypoglycemic reaction is probably one of the ones that you want to be um, more concerned with because it's actually sometimes called insulin shock. Now, this is serious because um, this could be deadly. What happens here is um, there is impaired neurologic function as the individual um, has a lost ability to have glucose. I don't know if I mentioned, I don't think I mentioned this previously, but the nervous system and nerves, the brain can only use glucose for their functioning. So without glucose around, they're kind of going to shut down. They don't have the ability to use fats for their metabolism the way that other cells do. So with hypoglycemia, you're going to have some some neurologic function issues, poor concentration, slurred speech, and a lack of coordination, changes in gait. 
Now, in addition to that, the sympathetic nervous system responds by increasing the pulse. The skin becomes pale and moist. Anxiety and tremors may be present. Now, this is something that is a problem because one of the potential things this could lead to as the brain um, shuts down without glucose is seizures and a loss of consciousness. Um, and so this is something if you can recognize and understand um, could save somebody's life. Um, in fact, they may sort of go into a sleepy phase, which is where um, that individual, hopefully you can identify before they proceed to the more serious um, stages of this. Um, this is where understanding the treatment is good too. So this is going to require a glucose source. Um, there are commercially produced glucose sources, um, for example, gels and tablets that contain a concentrated amount of glucose. Um, even um, having things like orange juice, hard candy, honey. Um, but there are, as I said, commercial products that an individual could carry with them or that you as an athletic trainer or um, exercise professional would hopefully have on hand to reverse this. Even just glucose solutions, um, just to drink, can be helpful as well. Um, a hyperglycemic reaction, on the other hand, particularly in type 1 individuals, is just going to look like they did before they were initially diagnosed. So they're going to have dehydration, which is going to make them thirsty. Their oral mucosa may be dry and rough. Rather than cool and moist skin, paleness, they're going to have warm, dry skin. They may have an increased pulse as well here, but it's often rap, but also weak. And because of the low blood volume, their blood pressure may also be low. If ketoacidosis has set in, DKA, like we talked about before, um, in addition to their pulse being increased, they may have more rapid respirations as the lungs begin to try to compensate. And those are called Kussmaul's um, respirations. These are rapid, deep respirations. And again, they may have that fruity breath and some lethargy. Um, Cramps, nausea, and vomiting may also be part of it. So some of these, as you can see, kind of overlap a little bit. But here, it's insulin that is the treatment because here, the glucose is high and it's not able to, particularly in a type one individual, able to get into the cells. Um, so if you're not sure, the best thing to do, if you can, is to do a glucometer test. So prick the skin, get a glucose level, then you know for sure. Um, because giving somebody insulin uh, when they're in a hypoglycemic reaction will only make it worse. So it's really important to understand the difference. And if you're ever unsure, just test if you can. Um, hopefully that kind of um, equipment is available to you. So as I said, let's go ahead and talk about the different medications that an individual might use to try to manage their diabetes. It's going to be different, obviously, depending on which type it is. So for type 1 diabetics, the, the biggest thing in addition to regulating their diet and exercise is going to be replacing the insulin that they can no longer make. And that could either be with a synthetic or a um, human analog um, of insulin that is made by recombinant DNA technology. And you might remember I mentioned this previously, um, that we have in the ability to introduce the genetics into a plasmid, into a bacteria that's able to make human insulin for us. And what's nice about that then is that 
there really shouldn't be any side effects of that because it is the same as human insulin made for us um, in a bacteria. Um, and there are different forms of this, rapid onset short-acting insulin, intermediate-acting insulin, and slow onset long-acting insulin. And these have various onset, peak, and duration times, and sometimes are combined in, um, with each other in order to achieve the, the management of their blood glucose over a period of time. Um, and so this is going to be very specific to an individual, their own metabolism, their own lifestyle and activities. Um, the way that it might be administered could be um, by subcutaneous injection, just by drawing it up out of a vial. Um, some individuals, again, particularly type 1, might have an insulin pump, which is kind of what you see here. Um, and then an injection pen, and these are kind of neat. They are a newer um, formulation of insulin that doesn't need to be refrigerated the way that the traditional um, vials of insulin do and they can be more portable for an individual. And this might be, for example, what a type two diabetic would use who doesn't need a constant source of insulin um, as a type one diabetic would, but might need it only depending on the situation, the food, the, uh, their individual blood glucose levels at, an, at a time. Um, the examples or trade names for some of these are Humalog, Humulin, Novolog, Novolin, just to kind of put that um, in the back of your mind as some examples you might hear of. For type 2 diabetics, insulin is usually a last resort. For them instead, lifestyle modification of diet and exercise along with oral medications is going to be the, the initial treatment. Um, and here are some examples of drugs that might be used. There are two categories of drugs, sulfonylureas and meglitinides whose purpose is to try to stimulate the release of insulin from the beta cells. Because remember, in type 2, they still have the ability to make insulin. So here you may have heard of these before, trade names of Diabeta and Prandin. And these are helpful, um, again, if they're just not producing enough. Um, and so this is partly going to depend on my that glucose tolerance curve that was done to kind of see what their insulin levels were relative to the glucose because these other ones, trade names of glucophage and Avandia, work a little bit differently. They tend to try to reduce resistance um, and or address the glucose production in the liver. So glucophage in particular reduces resistance in the muscles and fat, in, in muscle tissue and fat, in addition to reducing the glucose production in the liver, while Avandia helps to increase muscle uptake of glucose which is kind of a similar um, idea here as reducing resistance in muscle, but it's a different um, mechanism. But you get a sort of similar endpoint with this. So here, this is important for people who may have a higher resistance than to insulin. Um, and then also have the added ability to reduce the glucose production in the liver. Now, um, additional information um, will be available on the module in Blackboard for uh, diabetic exercise, and you probably have additional information about this in your clinical exercise science courses. Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about some of the other endocrine glands. Um, the pituitary gland is closely related to the master gland or hypothalamus. Um, and so while I'm not gonna talk specifically about the hypothalamus, I did want to sort of review with you um, how it is related because as we talk about some of the other 
um, endocrine conditions like the thyroid and adrenal gland, um, we need to be able to understand that figuring out what's wrong with those might be dependent on the pituitary and the hypothalamus, which help to control those other glands. So the, this image kind of gives you an idea of what all those different target tissues or glands are. And there are two different portions of the pituitary gland to um, remember. The anterior portion of the pituitary has targets that are both endocrine and non-endocrine in nature. The endocrine tissues that the anterior pituitary targets include the adrenals and thyroid, which we'll talk about later, and some of your reproductive um, tissues. But you also have some reproductive tissues that are the target of um, the anterior pituitary that do not themselves produce hormones, like the breast and the uterus. Kidney, bone, and muscle are also part of the non-endocrine targets of the anterior pituitary, but they don't use a feedback loop because they don't themselves produce hormones. The non-endocrine tissues that the posterior pituitary targets are breast, uterus, and kidneys, and we'll talk about a couple of those hormones in a moment. Now, typically, if there's something going on with the pituitary gland, it may be that there is a functioning adenoma, in other words, neoplasia or growth of tissue that increases the production of a hormone that would lead to hyperpituitarism versus um, infarction or destruction of tissue would cause hypopituitarism. So we'll talk about some specific things here based on the actual hormones produced. So we'll start with the anterior pituitary that makes a whole bunch of different hormones. And I'm not going to go into a lot of detail here. Um, but I do want to at least discuss the individual hormones and what might happen. So with growth hormone produced in the anterior pituitary, also called somatotropin, that makes up usually about 14% of pituitary issues. You can have, depending on whether there's too much or too little and what time in life this occurs, you can have either gigantism, acromegaly, or dwarfism. So let's start with gigantism versus acromegaly. Now this would be if you have too much somatotropin. And the difference between the two is what you can see here in this photo is whether or not the growth plates have closed. So if the elevation in growth hormone occurs earlier in life, before the growth plates and the bones have closed, then the individual will have an overall um, sort of balanced increase in growth. Whereas if that increase in somatotropin or growth hormone occurs after the individual has had a close in their growth plates of the bones, then here that same hormone is going to cause the tissues to grow in a different way. And so they might have an average height, for example, but have changes in, in the thickness of the bone and the thickness of the tissue, which it's hard to see here, but there are some pictures in the textbook that give you a better idea of what that looks like. Now, this would be the average person in comparison. If the lack of somatotropin or growth hormone happens earlier in life, then they will not have the same growth rate, but might have a more proportionate stature um, than your individual here who has that happening before after the growth plates have closed. So before growth plates have closed, a lack of growth hormone will just cause a slowed growth, a shortened um, period of time with that 
um, hormone being out of balance from the average. The other two to talk about here are more reproductive related. Prolactin, as its name implies, is meant to promote the produce, production of milk. And so it is targeting the breast glands and it makes up actually a quarter of pituitary disorders in the anterior pituitary. Whereas luteinizing hormone and follicle stimulating hormone are going to cause changes in reproductive um, performance and or fertility um, if it happens earlier in life, making up about 10% of anterior pituitary disorders. Um, these last two are related to other endocrine tissues. So I put them on your radar here as a way of reminding you that once we start talking about the adrenal gland and the thyroid gland, we have to remember to consider that something that we perceive as an issue with either of these glands might actually be a pituitary problem if these are in low um, production. So problems with adrenocorticotropic hormone would mean that here you are not, oh, um, I just realized this goes up here. I apologize for that mistake. Um, that goes with LH and FSH, not here. Um, but adrenocorticotropic hormone and thyroid stimulating hormone are going to be things that we'll talk about as needing to be um, addressed with those specific glands um, in order to determine what might be going on with symptoms of hyper or hypothyroid, hyper or hypoadrenocorticism. So we'll come back to those. Um, the pituitary, posterior pituitary, releases a couple hormones that we've actually talked about just briefly, at least in terms of ADH. ADH is sometimes also called vasopressin, and we did talk about ADH briefly when we were talking about um, controlling the um, blood pressure system. So anti-diuretic hormone functions um, to change the absorption of water in your kidneys. Now this works differently than aldosterone. We talked about aldosterone, which comes from the adrenals, as a way to absorb sodium, and that causes water to follow. Antidiuretic hormone does not move around sodium as a way to control water. Instead, if you don't have enough ADH, you have the disease called diabetes insipidus, where you lose a lot of sodium-free water. Now, the reason it has this name similar, similar to diabetes mellitus is one of the signs of this is polyuria. But here, it's called diabetes insipidus because it does not contain glucose the way it does in diabetes mellitus. So it would not, if you were to taste it, as they used to do in olden times, it would not have a, um, a sweet taste. It would be bland, so insipid. So this might have large amounts of, of urine being produced, but it's sodium-free um, and sodium and glucose-free. So this would mean then that that sodium is going to back up into the bloodstream. So they tend to have hypernatremia. This means that with that loss of water, their specific gravity goes down in the urine. So they have large amounts of water in the urine, which dilutes it out. And that's how you know that it's dilute, is the specific gravity is low. This leads to severe dehydration, lethargy, and depression. But it can easily be treated by just replacing vasopressin with either a naturally produced vasopressin or synthetic derivative, such as desmopressin. 
Oxytocin, just briefly, just as for completeness sake, is another hormone produced by the posterior pituitary, and it is going to act on breast ducts and the uterus. In fact, during pregnancy, at the time that it is um, the end of gestation, it is what is necessary to produce the contractions of the uterus that start labor. In addition to continually being released um, as a way to cause the milk to be released from the breast glands during breastfeeding. Let's talk about the thyroid. Now, the thyroid makes triiodothyronine and thyroxine, which can either be bound to proteins or free and active, similar to the way we talked about different um, drugs being bound or free and active. Um, and that, the reason I bring that up is testing for thyroid conditions might involve testing for these various forms of the hormone. So in comparing the elevated amount of thyroid hormone versus the low amount of, of thyroid hormone, I'm going to give you examples of each because there are various kinds of either hyper or hypo thyroidism, but the primary example I'm going to give to you for each is because it is the more common. So the more common example of hyperthyroidism where you have too much thyroid hormone has an autoimmune etiology. In other words, the immune system ends up attacking thyroid tissue and causes you to make too much of it. So here, in general, you're going to have an increase in the metabolic rate, which usually includes weight loss. There is also a general increase in the heart rate and the blood pressure which these two together end up changing the cardiac structure and function because your heart just ends up working um, harder than it would in a normal situation. They tend to be more agitated. They're um, sensitive to heat because their body temperature is increased. That's called hyperthermia. And they have an increase in the tissue behind the eyes, which causes a protrusion or bulging of the eyes through the eye socket called exophthalmos, and that's what you see here in this image. Um, there's almost a staring, wide-eyed um, expression with individuals who have this condition. And they may have um, what's called goiter, which is a swelling of the thyroid itself in the neck. If you compare this to hypothyroidism, it's kind of the opposite. There is a slowing of the metabolic processes, and the most common of these is also immune-mediated, called Hashimoto's thyroiditis. In other words, it's inflammation of the thyroid, which decreases your production of thyroid hormone. Um, there are some other reasons that an individual might be hypothyroid. For example, it's more common in women in middle age and there is a suspicion that it's actually more um, predominant than we know. It may be undiagnosed in individuals. And I found this graphic online that one in eight women um, may have thyroid disorder in their lifetime. Um, and that sometimes it might not even be enough to be clinical. It could just be underactive without being a complete hypothyroidism. But regardless of the case, what it leads to is 
fatigue, slow movement, slow speech, and this wouldn't be the underactive. This would be a full-blown hypothyroidism. More specifically, again, I'm talking about Hashimoto's thyroiditis. Rather than a heat intolerance, they have a cold intolerance. Their hands and feet may be cool, for example. Their skin may be cool and rough. Rather than a weight loss, they may have some weight gain, but they may not be morbidly obese. They may have, rather than a high heart rate, a low heart rate, bradycardia. They may have some digestive issues with slow metabolism and um, slow digestive movement, leading to constipation. There may be a delayed relaxation of deep tendon reflexes, and goiter, again, may or may not be present. So you can have goiter with either hypothyroidism or hyperthyroidism. Now, there are some more rare um, complications or incidences of hypothyroidism that I put on here for completeness sake, but what I'd rather you concentrate on is this example of Hashimoto's. Myxedema coma is a severe hypothyroidism that's potentially life-threatening. It leads to a more marked hypotension, hypoglycemia, and hyper, I'm sorry, hypothermia. So low blood pressure, low glucose, low body temperature. Now, cretinism is the term that goes with a congenital hypothyroidism. Again, this is more rare, um, so I just put it on here for completeness sake, but the um, example of Hashimoto's autoimmune um, hypothyroidism is, is the focus of this particular topic. And here's a comparison slide for you. So um, in addition to some of the other things that I had listed there for you, as signs and symptoms, an individual with um, thyroid failure, in other words, hypothyroidism, might have coarse and brittle hair. Um, as opposed to hyperthyroidism, they might have um, more fine hair. Um, they might, if they have low thyroid, have some sort of swelling or puffiness in their face. Um, they might have muscle weakness in addition when they're hypothyroid and even some edema, particularly in the e extremities. And again, I, you sort of think of the general metabolism and cold and hot heat tolerance, um, cool dry skin versus warm sweaty skin, um, low heart um, characteristics versus elevated cardiovascular characteristics. So just all some things to keep in mind. And if this is going to be diagnosed, there's going to be a little bit difference here, but as always, we have to consider the fact that it may be a pituitary issue versus actually being a thyroid issue. So here, if it is a true hyperthyroidism, the TSH levels are low because there would be a negative feedback um, if T4 is high on the hypothalamus. Um, what you would see is total and free T4 levels would be normal, high normal or high, and T3 levels may or may not be high as well. But in order to treat this, there has to be some sort of investigation of what that cause might be. So medication could be used, iodine could be used. Um, in fact, a radioactive iodine solution to decrease the amount of thyroid hormone might eventually lead that individual to be hypothyroid, but that can be treated by just reintroducing thyroid hormone. So it sounds sort of 
counterintuitive to get rid of excess hormone only to eventually need to replace it, but it's easier to replace it than to get rid of the excess. Now, surgery might um, be a possibility, but um, if you remember your anatomy, the parathyroid glands lie right on top of the thyroid, and so there are some potential risks of becoming hypothyroid, hypoparathyroid, or even have having other throat issues if surgery does occur. Hypothyroidism is a little bit easier in the sense that you just need to replace thyroid. In fact, there is a synthetic um, thyroid hormone called Synthroid that is um, relatively easy to administer that can be a treatment for this. Now, there are some things for you to keep in mind in your future line of work if you're going to be working with individuals who might have a thyroid condition because um, their individual characteristics might lead to an issue with their ability to maintain exercise. While exercise is important for all of us, they might just need a little bit of consideration for their um, symptoms. If they have a high body temperature or a high heart rate, then they're obviously going to have an inability to maintain exercise. And so their focus might be more on shorter bursts of moderate exercise and maybe not even um, exercising at all if they are having a time of particularly high body temperature and heart rate just to avoid complications. But obviously having some sort of exercise plan with them so that they're not becoming completely sedentary would be important. Hypothyroidism, on the other hand, um, won't have the, the issues of heart rate and body temperature, but um, just because of low metabolism, they're going to have limited endurance and more fatigue potentially than someone with hyperthyroidism. So that might require some management um, and, you know, working with their individual plan as well. Um, let's go to the parathyroid. I just mentioned that um, if you remember your anatomy and physiology, they are found on the surface of the thyroid, but they function actually to regulate calcium, which means that they work with a bunch of other tissues, particularly here, and this is important to realize, they work with the bone, kidney, and the GI system with the use of parathyroid hormone, or PTH, as a way to regulate that calcium. So it's kind of a complex process. So what happens here is, if calcium in the bloodstream becomes low, the parathyroid hormone is released, which causes you to resorb bone. In other words, release calcium from the bone into the bloodstream. You also will begin to reabsorb it in the kidney, which will increase it in the bloodstream, um, partly by excreting more phosphate because calcium and phosphate go opposite of each other. Now you will also, as a result of this PTH, activate vitamin D, which helps you to absorb any calcium from your diet in the intestinal mucosa. So all of this together produces an increased blood calcium in addition to lowering the blood phosphate. Remember, they're going opposite of each other. So the Differences between hypoparathyroidism and hyperparathyroidism have to go along with these various tissues that they influence. So if someone has low parathyroid hormone, it could be either congenital 
or that they had some sort of neck surgery or radiation to treat thyroidism, hyperthyroidism. Remember I mentioned that's one of the possible side effects of treating hyperthyroidism. Or there is a um, possibility that the tissue was destroyed through an autoimmune reaction. What happens here? Because you have to remember that calcium is an important part of not only nerve conduction, but muscle contraction. There are going to be weak cardiac contractions, but the skeletal tissue actually becomes more sensitive and you'll get more spasms and twitches. And this is partly because the skeletal muscle can store calcium, but the cardiac muscle can't. And so the skeletal muscle may just become more sensitive and use the calcium that it has in storage to, to go through twitches and spasms. Whereas the cardiac muscle without that stored calcium, because they don't have the ability to do that, they're gonna produce more weak contractions. Diagnostically, what you're going to look at is the PTH levels themselves, which will be low because we're hypo or low here. But there is the possibility that there are other things because it's a complex system that are influencing this. For example, if an individual has really elevated phosphate, then their blood calcium is going to be low. So looking at calcium levels along with phosphate and PTH levels is also going to be an important part of diagnostic criteria with hypoparathyroidism. Hyperparathyroidism or elevated PTH and calcium here might be due to hyperplasia or neoplasia, so tissue that's producing more parathyroid hormone or secondary to renal failure. And again, this is in relationship to that um, phosphate and calcium relationship with PTH. So here, you're going to typically have elevated calcium. So here, um, the term that I remember learning about this was hyperparathyroidism causes stones, bones, groans, and moans. Now what this means is that individuals are more prone to kidney stones. They typically have a decrease in calcium in their bones, something similar to osteoporosis. They tend to have um, increased aches and pains, partly because of muscle, um, cardiac muscle atrophy, and they're more at risk for depression. So this might help you in sort of understanding what's going on here. Stones, bones, groans, and moans to go with hyperparathyroidism. And again, diagnostics are gonna be dependent not just on looking for elevated PTH, but also potentially looking at what's going on with calcium and phosphate and the kidneys, since we know that they are closely related and that kidney failure is a potential reason that an individual might have elevated levels of calcium. Let's look at the adrenal gland. Remember the adrenals lie on the very top of your kidneys and they have a couple different parts. The outer area is called the cortex. And that's the part that responds to adrenocorticotropic hormone from the pituitary. They, this ACTH is going to stimulate the production of adrenal hormones like glucocorticoids, mineralocorticoids, and androgenic steroids. Glucocorticoids, like cortisol or your stress hormone, help to function with metabolism like glucose metabolism. 
Mineralocorticoids like aldosterone, which we've already talked about, help to regulate minerals and electrolytes. We talked about aldosterone in the RAA system because it helps to move around sodium and therefore water. Androgenic steroids, quite obviously, is because they create the building blocks of your reproductive hormones. Um, and this will come back into play as we look at the differences between low levels of adrenal hormones and higher levels of adrenal hormones, because this will then lead to some of your signs and symptoms. Now we'll also after that talk about a condition where the medulla or the central portion of the adrenal um, makes too many catecholamines. Now catecholamines are um, epinephrine and norepinephrine. In other words, your autonomic system response, typically of a fight or flight or stress response. So if you have too much of those, you're going to have a heightened or prolonged stress response. And we'll talk about that in a second. So let's talk about if you have too much adrenal hormone. So hyperadrenocorticism. So this is too much uh, adrenal hormone. Here, um, the term that typically goes with this is Cushing's syndrome, and I emphasize syndrome because if you recall from the beginning of the semester, a syndrome is an umbrella term that goes along with a bunch of different signs or symptoms that could be caused by any of a number of different things. So here, the etiology of Cushing's syndrome could actually be a problem with the pituitary or adrenal glands, which in that case it's usually called Cushing's disease. However, you can have similar signs and symptoms to that that's actually due to cancer because sometimes tumors in other parts of the body, like maybe a lung tumor, have the ability to produce adrenal hormones. And so then it looks like Cushing's, but is not actually Cushing's. In that case, it's perineoplastic syndrome producing Cushing's syndrome. Or it could look like Cushing's, but be due entirely to taking glucocorticoids as an anti-inflammatory treatment. And in that case, it's called an iatrogenic etiology, where you are causing this through a medication or treatment. So I just kind of emphasize for you the difference between these. A um, technical definition of Cushing's disease is an issue with the hormones themselves rather than cancer or medication. Now, what this looks like is usually based on the clinical picture produced by excess cortisol. So if you think about this, um, having too much cortisol is going to kind of produce this stress response. So an individual might have increased glucose. In fact, they may even have been diagnosed with diabetes. And because of the increased glucose in their bloodstream, they may be PUPD and polyphagic. In other words, be producing too much urine, polyuria, which makes them dehydrated and thirsty, polydipsia. Now, in addition to that, some of those other um, increased hormones, like mineralocorticoids, the increased mineralocorticoids may produce osteoporosis because that's going to increase calcium in the bloodstream, which means it's going to be less present in the bones. They may have um, body hair called hirsutism, although their scalp itself may have thinning hair. They may have elevated blood pressure and weight gain. So here's kind of a clinical picture. 
In addition to these things I've listed here, they may have some visual observable changes. In addition to the um, increased facial hair and body hair, they have sort of a puffy, um, sort of swollen looking face called a moon face. And they may get an um, increased amount of fat on their upper neck and shoulders called a buffalo hump. They tend to have an increase in abdominal, abdominal obesity, um, but yet at the same time have muscle wasting in their extremities. Um, they bruise easily and may even get um, markings on their skin called striae um, that kind of um, have a wavy appearance. And this is interesting too to remember. So cortisol producing a stress response with glucose changes in mineralocorticoids that might decrease bone density, you also will have an increase in androgens because all of those adrenal hormones may be increased, which means that in men, they may also begin to have some changes in their um, sex characteristics. They may have something called gynecomastia, so an individual may, um, who is male may produce some female characteristics. Um, and then in women, they may also produce male characteristics like facial hair, for example, because of that increase in androgens in, in addition to glucocorticoids, mineralocorticoids. Um, the opposite case where they have hypoadrenocorticism um, is going to produce lowered levels of glucocorticoids, mineralocorticoids, and androgens. And here, immune-mediated destruction of the adrenal gland is the number one cause. However, treating Cushing's disease may cause an individual to become um, to have hypoadrenocorticism. It's also possible that cancer or infection could um, trigger this kind of reaction. Now, the low level of adreno, adrenal glands here, rather adrenal hormones, is called Addison's disease rather than Cushing's. And one of the ways that I remembered this learning it growing up was Cushy Carl has a lot of everything, but anemic Addison has low levels of everything. So Cushy versus anemic. So here, rather than specifically being anemic in terms of blood, it's other things that are low. So rather than elevated glucose, they have low glucose. Um, rather than hypertension, they have hypotension and potentially um, low heart rate. Because of their low mineralocorticoids, their electrolytes being off may contribute to arrhythmias. And here's how that um, can go as well. Because um, sodium and potassium tend to go a little bit differently, they may have low levels of sodium in the blood, but higher levels of potassium in the blood. They may even be in acute renal failure. Without aldosterone to keep them from getting rid of too much water, they may become dehydrated. This can also lead to lethargy, depression, weakness, and confusion. Rather than too much body hair, they may have a body hair loss. And as the... Um, pituitary tries to respond to these low levels of adrenal hormones, they may increase the adrenocorticotropic hormone from the pituitary, which by doing that increases um, another hormone called MSH, melanocyte stimulating hormone. And there, melanocyte stimulating hormone is going to cause a hyperpigmentation of the skin. 
So melanocytes, if you recall, are those cells in your skin that make pigment um, that cause you to get darker when you're in the sun or to make freckles, for example. And so when your body's not making enough adrenals and your pituitary wants to try to, to fix that, it will increase this, which because this isn't responding to produce any more of these, it will also stimulate other hormones, and this is one of those, which leads to this change in the skin color, particularly in the extremities, and the skin creases, like the places under your armpits or in this inguinal crease. So here's some other things, personality changes, um, anorexia. They may also have thyroid and parathyroid disease going along with it, and cardiac changes that are surrounding this hypotension and insufficiency and they may actually have an atrophy or destruction of the adrenal glands. Um, and muscle weakness can happen here as well. Now, just to keep this on your radar as far as working with these individuals with exercise, because they already have a risk of dehydration with the deficit of aldosterone, they have a risk of dehydration with exercise. So that's something to keep in mind if you know that a patient, client, or athlete has been diagnosed with adrenal disease. In terms of diagnosing um, the difference between these two, one of the ways that they tend to do um, diagnostics may involve testing the amount of hormones present in a 24-hour urine specimen. So that's what they do here. They collect urine for 24 hours, and then that will allow them to determine a cortisol level. And if it's elevated, that's going to be an indicator of Cushing's um, disease. They can also then figure out whether it's a pituitary or adrenal reason for that by doing a dexamethasone suppression test. So what that does is it suppresses the secretion of ACTH from the pituitary, and if the adrenal hormones are still high, they know it's not the pituitary, that it's actually an adrenal problem. Whereas if you suppress the ACTH and the adrenal hormones go down, then it was actually the pituitary producing too much ACTH that was the problem. And because one of the main reasons that that happens is neoplasia or a tumor, then um, scanning with MRI and CT may be uh, a way that they do planning for surgery and radiation to address the excess production of adrenal hormones. For Addison's disease here, rather than suppressing ACTH, they may stimulate it. And what would happen here is by increasing ACTH, they would find that the before and after cortisol levels are negligible, telling us that for some reason we're not producing the proper amount of um, adrenal hormones. Now here, again, you can replace hormones. For example, you can give hydrocortisone to replace cortisol, fludrocortisone to replace mineralocorticoids, and then if, depending on the age of the individual, if replacement of androgens is necessary, that may be a possibility. As far as the adrenal medulla, remember that's where you're making um, norepinephrine and epinephrine as a response to the sympathetic nervous system. Now typically, the majority of these conditions are caused by a benign adenoma. And the condition then is called pheochromocytoma. So what happens here is that benign growth begins to secrete levels of norepinephrine and epinephrine that will essentially mimic the stress response but at a much higher dangerous level. So the individual becomes tachycardic, elevated heart rate, their respiratory rate increases, their blood pressure increases, and they may even collapse. So this can be pretty serious. Diagnostically, again, you can collect urine for 24 hours and test 
for those different hormones. And then because the majority are a neoplasia, you may have to do imaging of some kind in order to diagnose that. So we've talked about quite a few different um, endocrine conditions and glands. And you might feel a little bit overwhelmed in trying to figure all that out. I tend to be a person who makes charts and notes and things to help organize the information. So I put kind of a similar thing together for you that you may wish to expand upon or print and post somewhere as a way of reviewing this to keep them all straight. Now I've abbreviated a lot of things here, but this can give you the basic map to guide study or memorization and learning, ideally more than memorization, of the different types of endocrine conditions based on the glands and hormonal systems that we discussed. Um, so here, understanding the difference between diabetes mellitus type 1 and type 2, that it's related to insulin in the pancreas. We didn't talk extensively about the pituitary, but I do list your different hormones here and that those are going to be specific to the hormone. Understanding specifically the difference between Graves and Hashimoto's, um, the difference between hypo and hyperparathyroidism, and knowing the difference between Cushing's and Addison's. So if you have any questions as you go through and try to keep all these straight, please let me know. But hopefully these make a lot of sense and you probably even have been exposed to some of it, at least in terms of diabetes before. So please let me know if you have any questions. Thanks.